I just kind of chalked it up to the devil tempting me again, you know, to give up this ministry thing. What the Holy Ghost showed me is that the devil is always looking for an opportunity. I was making like double the amount of money that I knew that I was going to be making when I graduated and got the job that I was, you know, getting a degree for. That's why it was so easy for me to chalk it up to the devil tempting me because I was like, well, this is clearly just about the money and I can't let the money deter me from, you know, the people that are dying and going to hell every day or whatever. In that culture too, they, it's just the way that they talk about it. Like if you, if you commit to this like path and then you don't go do something and you go do something else, like they just, they just look at you as a total failure. The thing about being in a bubble is that you don't know you're in a bubble until you get out of it. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And that was Travis Chappell describing to us just one of the many rules he was taught to abide by in the small religious town of Lancaster. Growing up in a structured environment where your appearance, your music, your profession are monitored, it seemed that Travis was destined for a life of rigidity and conformity. However, Travis didn't follow the path his community paved for him. He forged his own and became the host of Build Your Network and the founder of Guestio. And that entrepreneurial spirit, that wasn't covered at a young age. As soon as Travis could walk, he was shadowing his father in the world of real estate. You'll find a scene like this in nearly every village, town, and city throughout the country. For in the hopes and dreams of everyone, there's a home they can call their own. When I was a little, little kid, he basically got laid off from a couple of his jobs. We moved back in with my grandparents who lived in a town called Lake LA, which was East Lancaster, like far East Lancaster. And I mean, Lancaster is already not a great town, uh, but Lake LA is even more so that way. Uh, just super, super tiny town. There's like one gas station, one fast food restaurant that's not even a regular fast food restaurant. It was called Burger Basket. That's where we moved back in with my grandparents in like this three bedroom house. Uh, my parents lived in one bedroom and then me and my sister and my uncle lived in the other bedroom and then my grandparents lived in their bedroom. And that's when my dad started getting back into real estate. He had gotten his license when he was younger, but never did anything with it. And at that point, after getting laid off from two jobs in a year, year and a half with two small kids, he basically was just like, I'm not giving that control to somebody else anymore. And so we started in real estate. It was what he really enjoyed doing. And so when I was a kid, you know, a lot of our time on the weekends and stuff like that was spent looking at houses or sitting in an open house with my dad, or uh, they used to do things, these things called caravans, like every Saturday morning. And uh, they would take literally a couple vans of real estate agents and they would kind of just travel around from house to house and looking at open houses and stuff like that. And so we would go with him on those. And it was always fun just because you get a donut if we went with him. And uh, so th those are, those are my early memories of, of being, in the real estate world, uh, which obviously influenced a lot of things later on. But those were those were good times, man. And, and they started picking up a couple rentals. My dad started doing a lot better. And uh, we would go out and stay in the rental properties overnight if they were in rough areas or rough parts of town just to prevent people from like breaking in and stealing stuff while they were fixing things up and things like that. So we would just go there and stay and we'd like set up a tent in the living room in a vacant house and just like camp there for the night. Those are Those are the memories that I have from growing up in a real estate household. 
Travis got to experience Take Your Kid to Work Day more than the average kid. At a young age, he had practically completed a real estate internship. He shadowed a professional and learned the tricks of the trade. Most of the greats start early. Tiger Woods' dad took him golfing when he was two years old. Mozart's dad had him composing as a four-year-old. Sure, Travis wasn't closing deals as a toddler, but he was totally immersed in the world. He was learning the language of salesmanship, the fundamentals of which he would build on as he got older. More than just salesmanship, Travis witnessed freedom, the freedom created by his father's profession. Paradoxically, the family that seemed to value independence so thoroughly found themselves setting up a life in a provincial religious community where independent thinking was less than encouraged. He doubted the word of God while he was living. He doubted the word of God while he was living. There's millions of people in hell this morning that doubted the word of God while they was living. That's why they're in hell today. They doubted the word of God while they're living. He had my family was fairly tight-knit when we were younger, and then the church that we went to was very tight-knit community. We were independent fundamental Baptist, and the church that I went to happened to be the largest or one of the largest churches in the entire country in that particular denomination. And it was one of the forefront churches of this entire movement that was called the Independent Fundamental Baptists. And so that community was really tight-knit, and we started going there when I was about three years old. There was a school on the church campus, and so that's where I went to school as well. And there was also a college on the church campus, and that's also where I went to college. So we grew up in that very tight-knit, religious type of a community. Really, it was honestly a bubble, man, because when you spend every day of your life there, you essentially don't know much else outside of that place. I was not one of those bad kids. Like I didn't listen to bad music and I, I was pretty disciplined in the things that I did. But I, I did have that inquisitive mentality where uh, if people couldn't explain something the way that I felt made sense, then I would always question, you know, like, why why is that? Why, why are we not allowed to, to do that? This doesn't make sense. How come we're doing it this way? You know what I mean? I don't see that anywhere in the Bible or, or whatever. The thing that you're saying is supposed to guide our lives. It feels like you're making a really big stretch here started questioning small things like how come I have to wear a tie all the time and how come my hair can't touch my ears. Those are some of the things that I started questioning. Like we couldn't go to the movie theaters when we were growing up. We signed something at the beginning of the year that said we wouldn't do any of that stuff. The church was Travis's sole blueprint for life. His school, his friends, his profession, his purpose, all determined by the church. He was expected to follow God and abide by strict rules his entire life. In order to win God's favor, it was necessary that he be clean-shaven and stray away from any music with the satanic electric guitar. Or at least that's what his pastors wanted him to think. But Travis committed one of the gravest sins in fundamentalist Christianity. He thought critically. He thought these rules were arbitrary and stifling, but he had no choice but to live by them. It was his entire life growing up. 
when they would drop us off at school, we were under the influence of our teachers. And the church kind of mixed the teaching and the church stuff together. The school and the church was very much like intertwined. They just start really young, man. It's a really good indoctrination sequence if you look at it from a marketing perspective. I remember the time that I quote unquote committed my life to full-time ministries, I was 12 years old. There was a youth conference that we had at our church. They said word for word, hey, we're talking about Jesus, what do you think? Growing up at, when you're in elementary school, youth conference is so cool because, you know, all the big kids get to go and then we get to go to Six Flags, Magic Mountain, you know, so you're looking forward to being able to go to youth conference from the time that you're eight, nine years old, you know, when you can even realize that that's a, a, a thing for you. My sister was a year older than I was, so she got to go the year before I did. And I was like, oh man, I can't wait to go to youth conference, you know, so you, so you finally get there and then they, they have services every day, like three or four different types of like preaching services. And at the very last day, the day after Six Flags, like it's my pastor, like my home pastor, uh, he's preaching this message and it was called Who Will Go? And the whole message is about like, who will, you know, reach the lost people in the world. People are dying and going to hell every day. And how could you do anything different besides go, you know, be in ministry and help people find the true path or whatever. And then at the end of the sermon, bro, there's, there was literally a 45 minute invitation. Invitation was basically our time to come forward and make a decision. And there's kids from all over the country and people are like making decisions left and right they have you come up in front of everybody like on the stage in the in the choir loft 500 of us that were making a decision to go into full-time ministry we're all filling out decision cards and making these cards and 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 like that whole 45 minutes uh invitation there's like a 12 person ensemble on stage singing this song called here am i i will go over and over like on repeat so many lost and dying so the, the message is called Who Will Go? The whole conference is about committing your life to God. And then my home pastor gets up, preaches the message, Who Will Go? And then during the 45-minute invitation, they're singing, Here Am I, I Will Go. That's obviously like emotional manipulation. An interest in anything other than church-approved activities? That was satanic temptation. Or so Travis was told. On one hand, the father-son real estate ride-alongs taught him to value non-religious business ventures. On the other hand, the church was clear. Anything that distracted from a life of ministry was Satan personified. The devil luring him away from God's plan. But a thing to note is to Travis, God's plan actually didn't seem too bad. He liked the opportunities provided by the church. He was just skeptical of all this indoctrination and the minutiae. He wasn't sure about the business of God, but what he was sure of was an interest in the business of business, namely entrepreneurship. I kind of just always had that little bit of entrepreneurial itch. My sister had this easy bake oven when I was a kid and she was, she was like a year and a half older than I was. So I always wanted to do everything she did. So my parents got me the boy version of an Easy Bake Oven, which was basically like making these little um, plastic or rubber bugs. And then you could cook them and then you get these little insects out of it, like this little rubber insects. And I would bring those to school when I was in elementary school and I would sell them to other kids. I just liked having money. I liked being able to like have a few bucks to spend at Walmart. You know what I mean? So I just enjoyed having money. Um, and really both my parents encouraged those things, but it was never, ever going to be a career path. 
it was, it was always just like, that's the way that you should think about money. That's the relationship that you should have with money, you know? And so uh, going into high school, uh, it translated into just doing a bunch of work on our property. We had two acres. It was always full of weeds. The pool area was always full of weeds, you know, and we had a lot of plants and stuff like that. And so I remember me and two or three of my friends would just be out there for hours and hours and hours on weekends, just like weeding and burning weeds and all that kind of stuff. And we'd get paid like five bucks an hour, seven bucks an hour or whatever. It always raised, you know, like the older that I got. Ganking weeds out of the ground and hawking plastic insects to his elementary school buddies doesn't quite count as godly work in the eyes of his pastors. Entrepreneurship was off the table. It couldn't be a career path. This indoctrination was so entrenched in Travis's mind that he rebelled against his own instincts. He loved the hustle. He had a natural inclination for it. Even his parents were supportive. But no, the church was the only way. This had been the mantra his whole life, and it would continue into college. Same campus, same exact campus that I had went to every single day since the time that I was five years old in kindergarten. And we had chapel every day in college. Then we had, we still had Sunday services. So we had Sunday morning and Sunday night, sophomore year, we would go on these vans and literally tour across the country. It was me and four other guys. We had a pianist and then it was a men's quartet. So we traveled around like the entire country and like sang in churches. This was like the college's main recruiting tool. And basically our number one goal when we were at churches was to get as many applications as we could. Um, So that was kind of actually one of my first really like one of the first times that I realized I was pretty decent at selling stuff. It's essentially selling. We're, you're, we're getting, trying to get kids to, to fill out applications for the college, and it's a paid application. That following school year, a buddy of mine uh, was working this new job. I remember, I remember this new job that he got. He told me, last week I made more money than I did in a week of work when I was working 80 hours a week, and I only worked 20 hours. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is actually decent money, you know? Went in, got an interview, started that job of uh, February of junior year, I think, of college. I really enjoyed that job because I was doing really well with it. I got promoted two, three times in the first month, like really quickly. Travis's sales job popped his bubble. From kindergarten to college, all he knew was church campus. Even his extracurricular activities like basketball were tied to the school, which also means they were tied to the church. He had no idea what lay just beyond the church's sphere of influence. I'd like to quickly point out that this upbringing is unusual and kind of weird, but then again, so is childhood in general. Often we don't recognize the irregularities, the weirdness of childhood until that time is contextualized, until you're exposed to the outside world. Sales offered Travis insight to the outside world. It was his ticket off the island. It introduced Travis to another life, and he really enjoyed that life. Was that a scary feeling to realize that you were being attracted to a life path that kind of deviated from the one that your whole life had been structured around? So yes, uh, it was super scary feeling, man, because I, I just kind of chalked it up to the devil tempting me again, you know, to give up this ministry thing. What the Holy Ghost showed me is that the devil is always looking for an opportunity to break you. I was making like double the amount of money that I knew that I was going to be making when I graduated and got the job that I was, you know, getting a degree for. 
When I got promoted to, to running my own team, I was literally running a team of like 15, 20 guys and we were knocking on doors and, and we were producing a lot for that company. That's why it was so easy for me to chalk it up to the devil tempting me because I was like, well, this is clearly just about the money. James chapter four, verse seven, New King James says this, therefore submit to God, resist the devil. And, and I can't will. let the money deter me from, you know, the people that are dying and going to hell every day or whatever. It was a total um, just confusing place to be because in that culture, too, they, they just, it's just the way that they talk about it. Like if you if you commit to this like path and then you don't go do something and you go do something else like they just they just look at you as a total failure. It was it was very lonely because the people that I did bring it up to did not encourage it and actually discouraged it. And I knew that if I brought it up to more people that it would be the same exact way. The thing about being in a bubble is that you don't know you're in a bubble until you get out of it. I was literally at that same campus from the time that I can even remember being alive. You know what I mean? Like I was three when we started going to church there. And then I was five when I started going to school there. So uh, everything, all, all of my memories, all of my friends, all of my life experiences were in that bubble. And so when I finally graduated, a pastor up in Fresno, and he was the only person, the only person that I talked to that entire time that basically told me, look, I just want you guys to come out here because I think you'd be a good fit for the church culture that we have. We have a full-time position if you'd like to do that. We have a part-time position if you'd like to do that. That was the first time I felt comfortable taking one of the choices that was in front of me because the pastor that I grew up with, he completely discouraged me. I told him that I was going to do something part-time up in Fresno, and he, he was like, your paycheck has to come from a church or you're not allowed to like serve God. And then it just like moved on to the next thing. And this was something that I had toiled over for like a year of like sleepless nights and like trying to work past. And then he like took care of it in a single statement. Pressure is an interesting thing. Sometimes people succumb to the pressure. But for Travis, the pressure revealed weak spots. The cracks in his small world. If that pastor hadn't given him such a black and white view of professional life and God, if that pastor hadn't applied pressure, maybe Travis would have taken longer to leave. Pressure pushed Travis towards an entrepreneurial path, and he was doing well. The church seemed to say, there's no air beyond the walls of this bubble, but once he stepped out, it was like he could breathe fully for the first time. And he saw other people breathing easy too. So I started uh, with this company, Royal Security. It was a door-to-door alarm company. The thing that really intrigued me about it was that the owner of the company, he was driving a nice car, and he was making good money, and uh, really was became my first real mentor. My first year cracked six figures for the first time ever. And at the end of that year is when I realized that I didn't want to go down this path for the rest of my life. I wanted more freedom. I love traveling and I love getting out and going places. 
And so at the end of that year, even though it was my best year that I'd ever had, and I was first year I cracked six figures and I was only working 20 hours and we were partying on the weekends, having a blast. Like it was a really great year. It was honestly a really a year that I needed because I had lived my, my life so structured up to that point for the purpose of pleasing other people that that year was really helpful for me to just have a good time, make some money, do what I wanted to do. When you were partying on the weekend, was there ever like, oh, this is the devil, like in the back of your mind? Yeah, for the first few months, for sure. I would wake up with a slight hangover and just have a ton of guilt about it because obviously a sip of liquor before that or a sip of alcohol, you know, growing up was like a horrible sin. And if you take a sip of alcohol, you're going to end up being an alcoholic. That's the thing about beliefs, man. Only thing that can change your belief system is experiences that uh, show you something contradictory to what your beliefs tell you is the truth. That's to me the really the only way that beliefs change is through experience. You can, you can read about other people's experiences as much as you want, but the bottom line is like when I got into that into that culture, and I saw the people around me and saw that they were happy, loving caring people who enjoyed life and had fun and had good relationships and all that kind of stuff. And they drank on the weekends and did whatever they wanted. And they said the F word and like they cussed and they didn't go to church, but I saw that they were totally happy and like making better money than anybody that I knew. It was a total conflict with what I had been taught because I was always taught every good and perfect gift is from above. I thought that you couldn't have those things if, if you didn't go to church and read your Bible. I thought that that was impossible. And I'm clearly seeing the evidence that it's that it's not impossible, you know, and, and people are like, well, how do you know that they were happy? It's like, well, how do I know that the people were telling me that were happy? There's unhappy people everywhere and there's happy people everywhere, man. And uh, when I first understood that, it started to really change my worldview. Religion doesn't equate to happiness. Upon that realization, Travis started to make decisions based on enjoyment instead of obligation. In Lancaster, his life revolved around religion. Every decision he made, going to Sunday services, avoiding non-secular music, keeping his face clean-shaven, these decisions were a byproduct of naivete and an obligation to dogma. His identity was rooted in his faith. He didn't know any other way to live. Now, free from the church, he could analyze his life logically and by his own standard. Having drunk alcohol, he realized that, yes, getting plastered at a party aired on the side of the sinful things that he had been hearing about, but enjoying red wine with a steak, that's a different story. The world wasn't as black and white as his community had led him to believe. And Travis was tired of the rigidity, tired of the hypocrisy that dictated his life. He craved individuality, the freedom to make his own decisions. And seeing the gray areas of his life opened his mind to new possibilities, motivating him to change his directory. We'll be right back after this break. I've been itching to travel, but there are two things getting in my way. Traveling is expensive, and we are in the middle of the largest pandemic the world has ever seen. But that didn't stop me from living out our travel fantasy and trying to save some money in that fantasy by calling Amtrak and saying... Can I share a seat with my friend? Hello, thank you for calling Amtrak. This is Ronnie. How can I help you? Hello. I was wondering if there are seats that could be shared. Seats that could be shared? Yeah, like, could I share a seat with a, a friend? I'm trying to understand. You, you, want to, you want 
two people to sit in one seat. There's no such thing as seat sharing. Right. So, like, like my friend couldn't sit on top of me or anything like that during the ride. Uh, unfortunately, no. Your friend could not sit on top of you during the ride. No. Uh, man, I, I wish sharing a seat was as easy as sharing a podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can share a podcast really easily. You could share uh, Finding Founders by screenshotting it or putting on Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram story. Gotcha. But I mean, they will let you sit next to each other. You know, I feel like I... It's just not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. Like, I like, mean, you guys can get pretty close to each other, you know, lean on each other, lay on each other, or stuff like that, but to sit, to, to sit in each other's lap, that's probably going to be an issue. But you know what's never an issue? Sharing this podcast. Take a screenshot of this episode, tag at Finding Founders Podcast, and post to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to subscribe and rate five stars. Now, back to the podcast. He knew he was getting closer to who he wanted to be, but he wasn't there yet. He didn't want to do door-to-door sales forever. I knew that in order to change my 10-year destination, I needed to change the trajectory where I am headed right now. And so I stopped. I've applied to a bunch of random jobs, didn't get any of them. Um, I was just kind of looking around at stuff. And uh, that was when I dove into personal development for the first time, started listening to audiobooks. I had never done any of those things before. And so the decision to start doing those things, that was a huge decision for me because it was not something that I ever enjoyed. And I viewed myself as being as not being a reader and as something that I would never do. And uh, that's when I that's when I finally discovered podcasting. Uh, I got turned on to Entrepreneurs on Fire. And so I checked out that one. And that was the one that really like convinced me to start a podcast. And so he encouraged people to start podcasts all the time. And, and I started looking at it. I checked out John's income reports because he pub- he's published his income report since he started his show back in 2012. And I was like, how is this guy making $3 million a year in gross revenue from a podcast? But then the crazy number to me was his net revenue. He's making like $2.6 million net. How? How is this possible? And he gets to like live in Puerto Rico. He travels when he wants to. He has like time freedom, location freedom, like all the freedom that I wanted. He talks to the coolest people in the world. Like how, how, like how can you have all of this through a podcast? And that's when I really started doing a bunch of research into podcasting. Travis now had a destination. John Lee Dumas, who you may remember from our episode last week, had exactly the life Travis wanted. He checked all the boxes. He lived in an island paradise. He talked to the most interesting people in the world, and he made a lot of money doing it. I think Travis was able to find this destination because when his in-person mentors left, he didn't give up. He turned to the internet, where qualified entrepreneurs shared a wealth of knowledge about their lifestyle and how they worked to achieve it. This reveals a really important lesson that might sound a bit harsh on the surface. What you are doing, what you're doing right now, it's not unique. I don't care if you're trying to revolutionize an industry or creating a brand new technology. Someone somewhere has done exactly what you are doing or at least something close to it. So Travis used John Lee Dumas as a blueprint for success and explored an unconventional career path. Podcasting. You had 
gotten all this information about podcasting. You were inspired by John Lee Dumas. And you said you hired a coach. I wanted to meet John. And so I reached out about a coach and he put me in touch with uh, this guy, Jeff Brown of the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff's a great guy. Jeff became my podcast coach. I had spent 3,900 bucks on coaching with Jeff, but then I saw that John was doing this mastermind at his house in Puerto Rico, $6,500. And that was who I really wanted to learn from. And so I basically was just like, I got to do it. It was a lot of money for me at the time. And it was the first time I'd ever invested any type of money into something like that. So as soon as I paid the money, I immediately had buyer's remorse because that's the kind of person I am. I'm a pretty frugal person. And so whenever I make any big purchases, I kind of have buyer's remorse. And I was like, I better learn something. You know what I mean? I, I just remember feeling this, this intense feeling of like, I'm entitled to learning something amazing here because I paid this much money. It better be freaking good. And then I caught myself and totally reframed the way I was thinking about it. I was like, you know what? The reason that you're going there is not for just some knowledge. You can get knowledge online. You can get knowledge anywhere. I was going there for a connection with John. And that was what I reframed my mind into thinking. And that's when I started really thinking about how do I add value to this guy? How do I help him to realize that if he puts a little bit of time into me, I'm somebody that's worth putting time into. I had started learning photography to do those things. So I was like, I'll bring my camera, I'll buy a drone, and I'll take some awesome pictures of his house in Puerto Rico. So we go to Puerto Rico, and uh, the first night that we were there, we we're staying at this condo, and I met the couple of people that uh, were also at the mastermind. There was four other people there, and we we're just kind of hanging out on the rooftop of the condo, and it was like, oh, I should throw the drone up, get some more practice in, you know, see what it's like. And plus, that was at the time where drones were just getting popular, so it was super yeah. badass to have a drone. So I put the drone up, and I was all proud of it, and I was flying it. The battery started to die, so I, I was flying it back. I had thought previously that the landing process was much more automated than it turned out to be. I was no professional, obviously. When I was bringing it down to land it, um, I kept having to go back up because it wasn't where I was wanting it to land it. I'd go back up and then come back down, then go back up and then come down, and then go back up and then come back down. And then uh, I was coming down one time and it hit this plant that was on the roof. The plant caught the propeller and then just like threw the drone into the wall and two of the propellers broke in half. So now like the thing that I just invested 1200 bucks to try to add extra value to John and Kate while I was down there completely broke and I was back to square one. But I just kept looking for that opportunity. And then that's when John mentioned that he was going to be uh, speaking at this conference and, and needed somebody to help sell journals. And uh, he had a guy that was working there, but he didn't have much sales experience. So he was like, hey, do you mind stopping by the booth for like the first five minutes and just kind of giving him some closing lines that he could use to sell more journals. And I was just like, John, I'll just work the booth for you. And then he invited me to another event and we started really being able to build a, a good relationship. Just the proximity that I earned to be able to hang out with him is what allowed me to meet a lot more people that were on his level. And when you meet people that are on that level through an introduction from somebody who's also on that level, it automatically makes you a little bit higher credibility point in that new person's mind, which, which allowed me to really like have a platform. Travis traveled to Puerto Rico, hoping to build his network. And he did one better. He met the John Lee Dumas. 
Yes, in an effort to impress John, he lost a drone, but luckily for him, he got a memorable propeller-snapping story that morphed itself into a nugget of opportunity. An opportunity to further connect with John. This opportunity compounded when Travis revealed his skill as a salesman. But Travis wasn't trying to take from John. He was actually trying to do the opposite. He asked himself the question, how can I provide value first? I started my show, Build Your Network, and I figured I should probably do the thing that I tell other people to do, which is network. So I started going to events and I took out a 0% interest credit card to help fund the podcast. It was a $42,000 credit line. I filled that thing up with learning, with coaching, with masterminds, with events, with going to places, meeting people, just to try to get out and go build my network because I was starting from scratch. For me, like investing in that level is a huge accountability partner. It keeps me accountable to doing the things that I say that I'm going to do with that new thing. That process of getting people into that network and then ultimately as guests into your podcast, how did that process go? At the beginning, it was not super great. Like I do a lot of training on rejection because obviously I did door-to-door sales, but podcasting is a whole new world of rejection for me because I don't really care about what like Joe Schmo thought about me when I knocked on his door and he told me to F off. But when you're reaching out to people that you really like like a lot and respect a lot and you want to get a positive relationship built with them and they ignore you or they tell you no, like that hurts a little bit more. I always thought like if I could just get a big enough guest, then I'll be able to explode, right? And so I got some really big guests at the time, for, especially in the entrepreneurship space. I'd gotten, you know, people like John and people like Patrick but David and people like Grant Cardone. Credibility and getting good guests is like the difference between a show that makes it long-term and doesn't make it long-term. Unless you are that good by yourself. If you have the credibility in yourself already, then you can start a show. But when you're starting from scratch like I was, like you can take the position of not being the expert, but being the detective, being the journalist, being the reporter, where all you do is just share with other people what successful people have done and there was not just one interview uh, it was always just like a random spike you know what i mean so you'd get a you'd get a spike and then after a week it would that spike would settle but when it would settle it would be a little bit higher than the previous settling point spiking and settling travis built his audience incrementally over time There wasn't much virality. It was more just slowly but surely plugging away. And that consistency is what separates the podcasters and creators that make it from the ones that don't. He had to face rejection head on. Face slow growth with grace. And just keep producing great interviews. But his persistence would be tested as he saw slow growth with his podcast. Around month 14 or 15, I was like really thinking about quitting because I felt like I did a ton of work. I was putting out three interviews a week and working my regular, you know, selling water. Just wasn't getting much in return for it. You know, I was already monetizing at a couple masterminds, you know, uh, just not enough to be able to really move the needle. So was it just about putting in the work or did something that you did change around month, you know, 11, 12. It wasn't necessarily like a, an interview or anything that make it, that made it took, take off. It was just that I decided to go full time with it. 
been focusing a little bit more on revenue and what I could bring to the table and how I could help people and serve them a little bit better. And uh, it was the first time ever that I had stopped doing something and took a pay cut to do something different. I just enjoyed it and uh, and it gave me the freedom that I wanted. And so I just kind of jumped into it. So when I started making some decent money, you know what I mean? Like starting getting back up to like that, uh, those, you know, seven, eight thousand, nine thousand, ten thousand dollar months through just the online stuff that I was doing, it was starting to become a little bit easier to justify spending money on growing the audience and getting a little bit bigger reach and impressions and stuff like that. The thing is, is that a lot of people want to put money in ads at the beginning of their, of their shows. And I always tell people, don't do that. Like, wait a few months, put in the reps, put in the work. Like, at this point, I know when I spend money on ads that it's going to be well spent because I've done a lot of work to make my show good. Like, the things that I'm doing are good. So when you spend money to send traffic to a show like that, you actually get to keep the traffic. It's like... Get having a bucket with holes in the bottom and turning on the hose and filling it up. Like it will fill up if you have enough water going in, but as soon as you turn the faucet off, it's just going to drain out the bottom and then you're left with no water in the bucket. There's no point filling a leaking bucket. That advice hits home for me. When I started this podcast a couple years ago, I immediately was like, how do I grow an audience? And the advice I kept getting back was the first step to growing an audience is making good content. I heard that advice so many times and I used to hate it. I was like, wait, no, just give me the hacks, the tips, the tricks. Uh, What's the secret? Don't get me wrong, there definitely are secrets. There's some great growth hacks, but all the growth hacks in the world won't help if your content sucks. You're just watering a leaky bucket. So to address the problem and patch the holes, make sure you work on your craft. Travis needed time to hone his craft, but eventually he found his stride and would look to expand his reach and influence. in 2020, we shifted our model from just doing podcast coaching to doing more done-for-you production, monthly production. We do monthly growth services for podcasters and and podcasters. Um, And then a few months ago is when we decided to start getting to work on the software called Guestio that basically allows people to find and book high-quality guests for their show. And the reason that we know they're going to be high-quality is because it's a pay-to-play model. So people will actually be able to get paid for their time, which is the thing that prevents them from getting on any sort of thing that exists like that right now. There's a couple other companies that exist that are somewhat similar, but uh, they they don't think about the incentive for the high level person, right? Like why is John Lee Dumas or Jordan Harbinger? Why, why are, like, if somebody's running a multi seven or eight or nine figure business, why are they going to get on that platform? You know, like, like they're, they already have too many demands on their time. They don't need more demands on their time. They don't need more people reaching out to them. They need fewer people reaching out to them. So we're building it in a pay to play model to where those people actually have incentives and those people are already signed up on the platform. You can go on there and book John Lee Dumas. You can book a Jordan Harbinger. We actually got one of the ones that we're really proud of. And that I think is going to be a big staple is we got Manny Pacquiao to be a bookable guest. Um, and that, that I think is going to open the doors to many, many, many other opportunities and a lot more A-list celebrities and other celebrity and influencer types. It's impossible to have 20 year growth in five years, right? But But if it were possible, 
what would that look like? You know what I mean? And that's kind of how we've uh, how we've gone about building the things that we're building out. Guestio encapsulates Travis's journey. He started unsure of what he wanted to do with his life and found that podcasting would be his medium to explore the world. He dove headfirst into the ecosystem and tried to establish himself by DMing high-profile guests and subsequently recovering from the sting of rejections. He had no audience, but slowly and surely grew. He knew the space. He knew how it operated. Now he asked himself, can I build a system, a service, an application that scales this knowledge? In Guestio, he found a gap in the market and capitalized. But it was more than that. He was creating a more vibrant podcasting ecosystem. He had a desire to help people to serve as a role model in his community. What advice would you give to your younger self when you were in that bubble of a ministry? Do your own research and get to know who you are. don't you don't really know who you are you know when you're you're basically a version of your parents or your teachers or your authority or the culture or environment that you grew up in you haven't had the time to get out and make your own decisions and live your own life and figure out what it is that you actually want and figure out who it is that you actually are a lot of people live their entire lives that way because they're always so focused on becoming the version of themselves that everybody else wants them to be and not becoming the version of themselves that they actually believe themselves to be always reading, always trying to learn new things and like figure out who I am at my core. And I wish I would have started that when I was a lot younger, you know? So um, the sooner you get to know who you are, the sooner you have that self-awareness factor, the happier that you're going to be because you can set up your entire life to fuel that version of you. You know what I mean? Like that's when you can start really uh, choosing who you spend your time with and where you spend your time and where you live and what you do for a living and what your career is, because all of those things are based off the person that you are. Mindset is so important because it creates opportunity. If you have a fixed mindset, if you believe that you have a fixed amount of intelligence, a fixed amount of motivation, a fixed amount of success, if you believe there are limits, if you believe there are ceilings, you will believe them into existence. You will be limited. But if you have a growth mindset and you are cognizant of where you are, where you want to be, and are open to learn how to get there, then those limits start to fade away. Travis didn't start with a growth mindset. In fact, the church seemed to actively deter their congregation from thinking of growth outside religion. Travis was at a disadvantage. But when his bubble popped and his world opened, he began to steep his brain in books, in videos, in podcasts. He started his own podcast and steeped his mind in the ideas of his interviewees. For Travis, his success was not a product of learning a specific tactic or a business strategy. It was a product of cultivating a specific way of thinking. Really, it was just cultivating one phrase. I can do this. If you believe that, if you have that mindset, and you see a destination, I have no doubt that you'll get there in no time. So get inspired, get motivated, and just go. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. 
To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahesh Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lin, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.